Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. From Los Angeles, this is Adam Huss. Thanks for listening. Reduce, reuse, recycle. This is an important mantra and one that we've all heard and applied in some small or large way at home. But for my guest for this episode, this was more than a good idea. It was her career, and it led to her starting her winery. Lisa Bauer is the owner of Yamakiri, a winery she started when she discovered a feral Sauvignon Blanc vineyard full of grapes that were going to waste. That vineyard couldn't have been discovered by a better person. Lisa had recently retired from a career in recycling and had a viticultural philosophy inspired by Masanobu Fukuoka. After retiring, she bought land and moved to the Yorkville Highlands AVA of Mendocino County. Her desire to let nothing go to waste started her on a path to figure out what to do with those Sauvignon Blanc grapes, and led to a chain of events that resulted in her winery and her cidery called Sin Eater Ciders. With Yamakiri and Sin Eater, she continues to make use of that feral vineyard, which she allows to remain wild, as well as grapes and fruit from other organic and biodynamic vineyards and orchards. I had a blast getting to know Lisa a little bit, and I hope you do too. She's funny, smart, and truly inspiring. She forged her own path in wine by following her organic values and her desire to let nothing go to waste. Enjoy! Hey, Lisa. Thanks for doing this. You were so great to do this on short notice, and I would love you to just sort of introduce yourself and your winery, Cidery. Okay. Um, thanks for the opportunity. I'm glad I could do it on short notice as well. So my name is Lisa Bauer. Uh, I am the owner and everything but the winemaker of Yamakiri Wines and Sin Eater Ciders. Alex Krangle is our winemaker and cider maker. Um, and uh, we work collaboratively. Um, it was a winery that started by happenstance. Uh, I was gifted a large volume of grapes. I'd been making wine and cider in my garage for years uh, and was gifted uh, more grapes than I knew what to do with. Um, <laughs> went to a custom crush facility in Anderson Valley and thought, okay, um, let me see if I can find out what it's going to cost me to do this. Um, and um, I did and thought I would just have Christmas presents for the rest of the time. Um, <laughs> to give to people. Um, Alex was the person there, and uh, who he was at that point the assistant winemaker. And he, um, this was Sauvignon Blanc that was abandoned uh, in Yorkville at the bottom of the hill where my house is located on an old sheep ranch. And oh, wow. uh, he tasted it and said, This is really special. You should not just keep this for gifts. And uh, that was basically how Yamakiri was born. Sorry. A long introduction for a very brief question. No, no, that's fantastic. That's why I was going to ask all of those questions anyway. When was that? So that was uh, that was like August, September of 2013. Uh, and okay, that was so our that's... first uh, vintage. Um, and we ended up uh, with that and then um, ended up with that. And then we ended up making a rosé and I was gifted some Syrah grapes and ended up uh, uh, with uh, three things at once. Oh, all at that, all in that same year. 
Yeah, so I started out I started out with the with the um Sauvignon Blanc um and ended up uh with a, a basically a blended rosé that was leftovers from friends at the custom facility <laughs> and uh, then the Syrah grapes fell into my lap. Oh, nice. So it kind of went from a fun thing to do and have Christmas presents to a Oh my God, I'm going to become a commercial winery too. Oh my God, I have three varietals to sell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's fantastic. I, it's you and I have some interesting similarities. I was a home winemaker as well uh, for years, and and I grapes didn't fall into my lap, but I had the same sort of experience of being like, all right, like I want to make this transition and, and then being like, Oh boy. And now we're doing this and we're full fledged. Uh, okay. Here's a question for you. Uh-huh. You did that. You started this, uh, and this wasn't the first thing you've done with your life. Um, <laughs> you you were doing other things. Um, wh- where did you come from? Like, what was your entree into you know, even being a home winemaker and what was your life like before all this started? Okay. So good questions. Um, the home winemaker thing, uh, I am uh, scrappy and cheap. I hate wasting anything. If I came into possession of anything that I could ferment, I also like alcohol. Um, it's my chosen <laughs> drug. So, um, um, if I came into con- contact with stuff that I could ferment, I usually did it. So when we had plums, I made Slivovitz. When we had um, apples, I made some <laughs> cider. Um, when I bought the property up in Mendocino in 09, um, instead of having to go to Oak Barrel and buy grapes, um, I had like all of this second pick stuff that I could mess with for years, which was great. I didn't have to pay money for grapes um, that weren't even awesome. Uh, Oak Barrel is a, um, it's a facility in uh, Berkeley that sells wine and beer making equipment and also sells grapes um so Got it. Okay. i i uh my i grew up with a dad who imported his own german wine because he couldn't stand the garbage that was being sold in america at that point. <laughs> and he so he, he he um was american born but of heavy german descent and um i found out just recently that my grandfather who uh, had a house in, uh, and a factory in Hoboken for many years when he came over from Germany, um, lace making factory, had an entire square block of grape arbors. Um, and I know <laughs> I, I found this in pictures. So it seems like it kind of runs in the blood. Um, Apparently, yeah. You're just watering down the Riesling, awesome Riesling from Germany um, with uh, water for Sunday dinners when I was like five and six years old. So um, I had wine for a long time uh, around. My mother was a teetotaler and an adamant, uh, like, oh, she was ridiculous. She was temperance queen. Um, but, um, <laughs> but my dad was a drinker um, and, I, drank <laughs> and uh, I grew a love for wine. And I remember early on um, starting, uh, joining wine clubs. I, I came with him up to Mendocino eons ago um, when he was still alive back in the late seventies, when he came out for a visit. Um, and I just moved out to the Bay area. Uh, we went up to Mendocino and we drove through Anderson Valley. Um, and the only thing that was there was Navarro, Navarro and Hanley were the only two things there. Um, that wow. and we went to the Navarro tasting room and 
I actually joined the wine club when I in my twenties, <laughs> um, and was a member until my late forties, actually. Um, wow, it was great. I mean, it was great because they had Elsvika yeah. and they had um, a Riesling and they had a Gewurz and they had stuff that was dry and it was relatively decent for America, which was yeah. like uh, just a godsend for me. Um, right. But anyway. Um, so that sounds like there is some nostalgia attached to those grapes as well. For there, you. there is, and it's a, a fascinating process to actually um, work with them, uh, venting them as opposed to dreaming of drinking, um, you know, good German wine. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So the answer to the question about what I did before, uh, that's a good one. Um, and it's kind of why I approached winemaking and pretty much everything in my life the way that I do. And that is that um, prior to, I retired at 50 from UC Berkeley. Uh, prior okay. to retiring, I was the campus recycling and refuse manager. And that was <laughs> the job that I had done uh, for 15 years and before that, 10 years elsewhere. So basically I went from waitressing and cooking in my teens and early twenties, putting myself through college, um, to um, uh, garbage and recycling and source reduction and reuse um, up till I was 50 and then I retired. And the sourcing of those first set of Sauvignon Blanc grapes from the bottom of the vineyard, from the abandoned vineyard, was really just an extension of reuse for me. Um, yeah. I mean, I yes, I know the critters have their rights to the grapes, but really, did they did they need four and a half acres? No. <laughs> so, I mean, there were a lot that sat and Definitely not. fermented on the vine. So that was that was basically the connection, the the um, ethos that moved me into um, what ended up becoming commercial winemaking. That's fantastic. Yeah, I that that's a great story. And I think from what I little I know about what you do, it sounds like you you're con continuing to carry that on where you're finding sort of abandoned and neglected vineyards um or you know and trying to source fruit from places that just otherwise would go to to waste or go back you know to be unused for higher purposes basically that is true to some extent i wish i had okay. more opportunity to do that um the only grapes that i actually get that are um uh, that would not otherwise not be used are the Sauvignon Blanc, the ones that I grow now. I took over managing the vineyard and um, basically maintaining the vineyard. Uh, so um, that's the reason I still have access to them. And it's still relatively wild. I do nothing but um, I, I actually don't even mow anymore. I, I prune and I pick. Um, so there's right. no water, no pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, no intervention. Nothing happens in that vineyard. It's an ecosystem that I enter and takes, you know, some of the biomass out of and then leave. Um, wow. So it's really a, a very unique situation. I wish I had access to more of those. I think other people, I was probably too loud in my uh, praising the concept of, you know, free stuff or cheap stuff from abandoned vineyards. Uh, because Could a you... lot of other people have started um, doing that now and it's harder for me to find feedstock. Um, <laughs> yeah yeah also, well and now there's frankly, i mean if anything tw 2015 taught me a lesson so i uh when I, my first harvest was 1.79 tons i believe 
um, out of a two and a half acre vineyard, very low, uh, very low mm -hmm. yield, but of course it's all dry farmed and it had been wild. So what do you expect? Um, as I've pruned over the years and then picked, um, my yield has gone up and down, but 2015 when we had no rain, I got 0.25 tons of grapes. So wow. those were the most expensive bottles of Sauvignon Blanc I have ever made. Um, and of course, I, I couldn't change the price, but, you know, they were uh, they were basically a gift to the customers who had stuck with me. I ended up with, I want to say, 26 cases. Um, wow. Yeah, it, was, it, yeah. was, it was pretty interesting. So, um, yeah, that's. Yeah, that, I, 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 had a, I had a wine that just everything went wrong with. I mean, other than the making of the wine, which it was delicious wine from really great grapes, but then logistics and breakage and all of these things like just went one right after. I mean, anything that could have gone wrong from the time, you know, it was made to trying to sell it did go wrong and i was like it, it just became a joke where i was like well the price just went up you know? right. <laughs> like the price per bottle like to the point where you're like yeah this is the most expensive wine ever made possibly <laughs> you know like there's no way to other you know there's no it's priceless at a certain point yeah, that's that was my joke about the sauvignon blanc i was like you know i should just give this to everyone for christmas presents because right <laughs> for me to even try to get any money on this it's like pennies on the dollar i'm like just leave it alone. But I, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I think that that's what they say separates the, um, what is it? The girls from the women, um, or the boys <laughs> from the men in terms of who wants to stay in the business. I've had, um, uh -huh. two of those years, one with incredibly low yields, another one with, uh, an, a rampant secondary fermentation issue that was just, uh, it was like the universe telling me learn how to make pet nat. Um, right. so, which I was doing already, but <laughs> it, it moved me even more in that direction. So yeah, I get it. Uh, I get what you're saying. Um, in final answer to your, um, question about, um, the other grapes and the apples, uh, at this point I source, um, if I don't grow stuff myself, uh, and I've had, I, I did have one other Chardonnay vineyard under my, um, control for a bit, which was fabulous, also abandoned. Um, if I don't source uh, if, if I don't grow it myself and I don't source wild, uh, I tend to source uh, certified biodynamic or uh, organic. Um, not always certified organic, uh, but pretty much always certified biodynamic, um, just because that's what's available in the valley. Um, I juggle yeah. a series of priorities, one of which is I want to stay as local as possible because it has less of a footprint. I want to yeah. support and um, um, promote the valley as much as I can because I live there and I love it. And um, I am not always fond of what the wine industry has done to the valley. And I think yeah. that um, I'd like to be another example. I'd like to be an example of someone who is more local and doesn't just come in, rake, rake some profits in and leave. Um, yeah. Far from that, actually. Profits, not so much. But um, <laughs> and, um I also think that the Valley has got particularly um, unusual and uh, really lovely terroir. I also really, really like the Yorkville Highlands where I'm located. Um, so the goal was to try to stay local and to try to work with what was there. And that moved me away from just abandoned and wild to stuff that I could access, but that still was grown in a 
careful enough method. Yeah. And, it, you know, at a certain point, if you start getting demand for your wine, I imagine you have to start thinking about consistent production. And if you're just using abandoned things that one year might be, you know, a ton per acre and the next year might be a quarter ton per acre, you, you, it's hard to be consistent. Um, you, and that, gosh, I have several questions. I want to go back to the, first of all, about the vineyard, the, the utter neglect that you farm it with, <laughs> I say jokingly, um, in a, I mean, I've, I, cause I really admire that. And I'm just curious, no issues with disease, mildew, like, I mean, is it just, you know, the vines get those things, but they still manage to ripen grapes. Um, I mean, have you learned anything from from just observing yep. what happens in that vineyard? Yep. Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, I started working with the vineyard. Um, I had taken all of the classes at Davis that one can take and not be an enrolled student. I did the extension stuff. Um, so I had learned everything that one needed to know about killing the yeast on the grapes by oversulfuring them and irrigating the hell out of them to get a higher blah, blah, blah. And none of these things were possible or none of these things were things I wanted to do in the vineyard. Um, and I, I, sure, I started out mowing with a big heavy tractor and pruning and shoot positioning. And I just, I realized, A, I was incredibly fortunate. I had a vineyard that did not need any of these things. I don't have any pest pressures, knock wood. But I think part of why I don't have any pest pressures, frankly, is because I am in an ecosystem that I have not manipulated. And I have the luxury of being in that ecosystem because the vineyard was abandoned long enough that it reached this kind of stasis that I then mm. walked into and was fortunate enough to be able to benefit from and not screw up before I realized that I didn't need to screw with it. Um, that's the real right. answer. If you want the textbook answer, um, it's that, um, and this is actually, this is also the real answer. Alex and I share a <laughs> love for um, things Japanese, um, if you can tell, um, uh, uh -huh. very specifically <laughs> yeah, for um, the teachings of Masanobu Fukuoka, um, yeah. which I read in my 20s when I started gardening uh, in Ohio when I was going to college um, and um, revisited again uh, as I was looking at this vineyard and thinking, why did we do all this caca for this poor vineyard? And then um, Alex just mentioned to me, there was a, a biodynamic study group and they were reading Once Raw Revolution. And I was like, oh my God, I remember that book. And I went back and read it and I was like, okay, here is, here is my litmus test. Um, here is the vineyard. Let's give it a shot. So yeah. that stopped me from doing just about anything. Um, it's a, yeah. I, I take what I call a very Fukuoka approach, which is virtually nothing, um, but a lot of observation. And right. that has served me really well. All of that said, I, I acknowledge that I am incredibly lucky. I do not have some of the pressures that other vineyards do. And I've had the luxury of walking into a situation that is not a, a crisis. Right. It had already achieved some level of balance right. and dynamic balance, right. basically. Right. That's, yeah, that, uh, yeah. And I, it's funny, 
several several points of that were uh, you know I followed that same sort of path and have read Fukuoka and <laughs> enjoy him as well. Um, the other question I had from what you had talk, started talking about was just in terms of going back to getting this thing off the ground, uh, you know, it sort of fell into your lap. At what point, if ever, did you think about a business plan or, or did you just kind of start to follow, you know, like keep track of the costs and expenses and, well, we got to sell this much for this much and, and uh, take it from there. Or, or how did that, how, from the business side, how did you approach it? So I, I'm kind of snirk, smirking as you say business plan because I never wrote one. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this is my retirement. Um, I retired at 50 uh, back in 2010 and I sat in my bathrobe for two years, um, uh, which was fun and really, really good because I had been like an overachiever and it was really nice to chill. And then I was like, and I'm bored. Um, so I realized yeah. I needed to do something. Um, and the something that I did was basically I decided to take $40,000 that a, a relative had given me and throw it at this project. And that was it. And not a penny more. Um, and so um, I have basic business savvy. I bef Years before I worked in recycling, I actually worked at Rainbow Grocery in San Francisco, which is a collective. That's another aspect of my life that doesn't really doesn't really directly impact wine, but is a very strong influence in my life, which is working collectively or cooperatively. Um, I had um, had a pretty extensive business experience running uh, Rainbow Grocery because basically, when you're a collective, if you're someone that has an aptitude at something frequently you end up doing it. So um, <laughs> I learned a whole lot about business, um, got my degree from Oberlin in philosophy and environmental ethics could not teach me. Um, so it really, it wasn't that hard. I can run a spreadsheet, I can run QuickBooks. Um, and I didn't have any intention of doing any more than breaking even, to be honest with you. Um, I still have never taken a salary. I don't know what that is. Um, yeah. I do all the work for free, basically. Um, <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, um, but it means that I'm in really good wine, which I enjoy. <laughs> um, that saves a little money, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have finally started paying myself for deliveries, you know, at the whatever the uh, IRS allowed mileage rate is. But the irony um, is that my husband and I are the... Um, cheapest workers that Yamakiri wine will ever get. Um, <laughs> and um, Alex was paid through the custom crush until um, that closed. And since then we've been trading. I take on all of the business uh, aspect of his wine winery, which is Azola wines, which you probably saw on the website. Um, yes. And that's yeah. his deal. Um, and in exchange, he does winemaking for me. So again, we're kind of, collaborating um so no i don't have a business plan and it probably if i if i had thought that this was going to be more than i bumbled into this let's be honest i completely <laughs> bumbled into this nor did i have great expectations nor frankly and i have to be honest i'm incredibly fortunate um i uh i i inherited uh, uh enough uh resources from 
family um, and also saved enough money while I was working that I don't need to worry about paying myself for the um, sometimes more than full-time work that I do with Yamakiri. Um, <laughs> the cost of the wine reflects that. Uh, is it sustainable? No. Is it fun? Yes. Do I make good wine? Yes. Am I happy with it? Pretty much. <laughs> nice. Okay. I, I mean, I'm fascinated by that. And I'm fascinated by the, the partnership with Alex too. I mean, that's, it's very uh, unusual, I would, I would imagine, in a business partnership. Like where, where are the lines drawn? How does that work? So that's, that's a really good question. Um, so here's, here's, what's, here's how it started and here's how it's evolved. And I assume it will continue to evolve. Um, initially, um, Alex, as an employee of the Custom Crush Facility, made wine for me with me giving basic guidance on what I wanted. Um, and that was because that was kind of the nature of the custom crush facility. Um, I realized pretty quickly that Alex was a far better winemaker than I would ever be. Uh, and, um, kind of spoke with him about, it. I was like, you know, how, um, how do you feel about taking more of a stage in this process and being, at my, our official winemaker and he was like you can do that that's fine um i'm still an employee of this facility but you know anyway um uh, right. it evolved uh i ended up <laughs> basically taking on every other aspect of the winery and of the cidery um besides the actual wine and cider making alex was incredibly helpful to, you know clearly he's in the industry uh, frequently, those, these were his ideas. I do not pretend to any kind of brilliance or insight into um, choosing bridles besides what I like to drink. So it was his idea. We had, we got, we, and it was his idea to. He wanted to make cider. He comes from the East Coast, from Vermont. Is it New Hampshire? Yeah. I can never remember Vermont or New Hampshire. <laughs> and he loved cider, and he was like, "Let's try to make cider." And it, 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 it was a cost-effective and fun thing to do. And my God, did it take off! And I'm like, "Oh, okay, there we go." Uh, so again, this is just huge bumbling on my part. Um, Alex, as we worked together more and more and he realized that, um, I really was sincere about the concept of partnering with him, um, which I don't think he had been, uh, interested in or, or, or really thought was possible initially. You know, it takes working with someone for a while to, to kind of get it. Um, we have very similar work ethics. Um, so um, and also very similar approaches to life and many other things. Um, mm. As we evolved and Alex put out the, the, the concept and the interest in making his own wine, um, he kind of, with a nod to the lineup that we were making for Yamakiri, he was like, you know, you only have one, basically one red, either a Pinot or Syrah, and I'd like to work with other uh, heavier reds, and it could be a compliment to what Yamakiri offers. And I said, okay. And I, in turn, would be happy to work on the marketing and the sales of this with you. So he makes it. And um, as appropriate, I bring in and taste people out on it. So I'm basically the sales rep for Azola, but he completely and wholly owns it. Um, it. And I, uh, I'm hosting him at this point on the website um, because it just makes sense. I assume at some point, there will be a break and I'm sure it will be amicable. Um, and it's, it's, it's served us well. I, I do what I do. Well, he does what he does. Well, um, it's division of labor and it's, it's been, I hope 
you know, you'd have to ask him it quietly um, without me around, whether it's been um, everything that he had hoped and expected, but it has been on my end. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. Um, no, it's great though. And uh, Yorkville Highlands, let's talk a little bit about that. You guys are sort of adjacent to the Anderson Valley AVA, but it's all part of one big valley, essentially, right? It is. Or, well, or it matters who you talk to and under what conditions. Um, okay. <laughs> so... Well, you, Yorkville is a little, I would say, warmer. You get a little less yes. of the ocean influence, yes. a little further inland. Yes. Um, and and so you can ripen more, like, cabs and, and the southern Rhone varieties, right. uh, Bordeaux. Um, what else, where else are you? I mean, is that mainly where you're That's getting, it. or are you getting from I, that whole I do region? Yorkville okay. Highlands. I, you know, for a while I did Mendocino Ridge, which is the only okay. non-contiguous elevation oriented, um, Appalachian in the United States, I believe. Um, oh, that's fascinating. And, yeah, I'm looking um, at the ABA map. That, that was fine yeah. then. And then the grapes that I liked working with there were no longer available. Um, so I am only Yorkville Highlands and Anderson Valley. Um, I like the stuff from Yorkville because, first because we have a very different soil type than Anderson Valley. We have Franciscan Melange, um, which is a challenging and interesting soil type, but brings forth some, I think, really lovely characteristics. Um, we also have mm -hmm. an elevation, and I like working with that, that does in many ways um, help with some of the pest pressures, um, yeah. but also has its own challenges associated with it. Um, we do have a warmer climate, uh, in many, in many ways, um, we are kind of where I think Anderson Valley is going 20 to 30 to 50 years from now with global warming or climate change or whatever we call it these days. Um, so, um, it's, I think it's, I think it's an interesting, um, counterpoint and, and, and yet an, a very similar area if that makes sense that's probably getting a little too geeky i'm sorry but... no no the geeky is what we're all about here <laughs> so yeah i like Yorkville highlands I, and i i also the other reason frankly i like Yorkville highlands is that it is still a really human small scale everyone knows everyone appellation and there's hmm. something nice about that i grew up in a small town i was a, a doctor's daughter and so mm. I was, everyone knew my dad and I couldn't get away with anything in a small town. And I thought I would never live in a small town again. And here I am in a small town. <laughs> enjoying that, which it brings, um, familiarity, knowledge, um, friendship, um, camaraderie, similarity. Do you miss anything uh, living in the Bay Area, Berkeley? Well, since I come back to Berkeley every week, basically, both to do deliveries and to do whatever <laughs> other incidental stuff I need to, um, shopping. Um, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, <laughs> if I could find a way of doing it less frequently, I probably would. <laughs> nice. I, the thing I miss yeah, the most, don't laugh. It's the internet. <laughs> we are in a Sorry, digital divide up there. We have really slow internet and I live five miles up a dirt road off the grid with bad satellite internet that I can't believe I have to pay for. Um, so wow. yeah, that's that would be the only thing that I could safely say. Now in the middle of COVID, right? Can't go to movies. Restaurants really aren't happening. So there is nothing right. in the Bay Area <laughs> that I need to come <laughs> to that I can't access up there. Got it. Yeah, it's it, I I'm, I've 
love that area. I just came up. Uh, we one of our wines comes from Hopland area. I noticed cab. your cat yeah. in the cab. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, it was my first time exploring around that area. It's beautiful. Um, you know, and it has that sort of the thing that I love about Northern California, where you know it, it's gorgeous, but it also feels rugged and isolated at the same time. It's kind of just you feel like grapes had to have come from a place similar to that just the sort of the, i don't know everything about it is gorgeous mm-hmm. yeah so Did yeah, you, it was i mean it's a great it's it's i i love it up there and it is incredibly beautiful and close to the ocean which i always want to be so yeah did you plan to uh grow wine when you were looking for property i mean did you plan to like was this was a was a wine any wine even at a you know a home style level part of the plan yes, for the property it was okay um so so um going a little further back in my life uh I, when i grew up in new jersey uh i i grew up on a farm and um even though my dad was a gentleman farmer and it was considered a tax write-off we actually did the work and right. lo and behold just like living in a small town and not possibly imagining wanting to do that again, who in their right mind thought that I would want to be digging ditches and, you know, uh, feeding the chickens and doing the stuff that I now happily do. Um, right. So I'm, you know, going <laughs> back to my roots. Um, I figured that if I was going to pay for grapes and I was somewhere where it was a relatively reasonable appellation and mm. I could, grow grapes why wouldn't i want to grow grapes so that's kind of that was in my mind um yeah the more i got up there the more i looked the more i looked at the soil profile which is in many ways on my property ridiculous a the only water that i would have that would be really realistic is boron heavy to the point where oh, the pines wow. really would suffer uh, right. but everything else was perfect and also the soil composition is so heavily magnesium that the amount of modification that it would take to make it work for grapes um, is such that it wouldn't have been a jump in and do it right now. I wouldn't have had success in three to five years being happy that I had stuff on the vine. Um, so that was kind of right. why I started looking to the vineyard at the bottom of the hill uh, on the on the private road that, that I'm on. Um, and the rest just kind of fell into place. I um, nice. have grown a few vines they don't do well on our property. So it's fine. I mean, you know, there's many things that you juggle when you decide to try to buy property. And if the vine right. part fell off, um, it's okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> that soil, uh, is that called serpentine? It the is. one that's magnesium? Melange is yeah. very, very heavily serpentine in areas. Well, so the, the whole melange thing is means a mix it's from what i understand it's right treated sea terrain from millions of years ago um so you get these pockets of weird different chemical things in it that are and yeah. literally from foot to foot you can get them um oh, wow. so it's a very very odd weird um kind of potentially fabulous growing area there's a a, a winery um or a vineyard just two properties away from me um who is on um they're at god they're at like 2400 feet and he is growing uh roan varietals um halcon is the name of the the winery um and he is growing roan varietals and you know they're struggling in the soil and you know 
let's face it, there there are some aspects in which that is exactly what you're looking for to get the characteristics out of the grape that are more fun to work with. But yeah, I imagine with like the really vigorous, you know, Grenache and Syrah, that would probably be, uh, you know, a nice sort of counterpart, yeah, kind of like a, a you know, thing to that, keep that, that limiting good. factor. Right. Um, but um, for me and Pinot and wanting to do whites, um, I was not, sure that I had the right and I'm also much lower and I've got a slightly different situation than he does in different water so anyway um it, it it was an intention it ended up not being uh the reality that's okay there are a lot of grapes out there I also have to say that as um climate change has reared its head um in more realistic ways um, as I was actually crunching numbers and looking at putting in a vineyard, and I had always intended to put in a vineyard, I was either going to do Pinot or Nebbiolo. I was hoping that I might have the right situation situation to do um, a Vermentino or, or maybe even Alberino. Um, I uh, just realized that the return on investment is so sketchy with the water situation that we're looking at up there that Right. It doesn't make financial and economic sense. It, it doesn't make ecological sense either. Um, yeah. To, to really do that when there are grapes out there. There's so many good grapes out there. Right. So I, 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 you know, it's the reality of looking at what you're doing versus the romance of having a vineyard. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> so, and I, I got, I, I got to be like a grandparent with the Sauvignon Blanc vineyard. I didn't own it, but I completely ran it and managed it. And like, yeah, it's a lot of work. Even if you do very little, which is what I do, it's a lot of work. So um, I am not hellbound and determined to put grapes in the ground. In that Fabulously. Same. Interesting you bring that up. There are three fruit that do really well there. Um, we The property that we bought had an, an orchard that had been cut down at the direction of the real estate agent who sold the property to us because we thought that whoever bought this would be a hobby winery person or a hobby vineyard grower. And I just, I mean, I wanted to cry when I heard that. They left one apple tree and two chestnut trees, which are fabulous and do really well. Um, wow. But the other trees that we planted... It's kind of a joke. I've got peaches. I've got um, pomegranates. I've got persimmons. I've got plums. I've got quince. I've got uh, walnuts and pistachios. And I'm just going through the rows and trying to see if I've lost any cherries <laughs> and nectarines. And I got to tell you, and apricots. And the only thing that does not have horrible pest pressures uh, is the apples and the quince and the, and the plums. Everything else oh. is... Um, suffering at best, I think would be the way to put it. Wow. Even persimmons. Yeah. And... I don't have the weather. Wow. I'm, at, I'm at 1800 feet. So Got it. even yeah. though I have hot summers, I don't have enough of the weather that you need to get the ripening that you want. Got it. So Got it. Yeah. I, I laugh because um, when, when we went from the first year that we made cider, we had apples um, that we fell into. Uh, and I had a bumper crop of quince that year and so without having much discussion about it, i was like alex do you have any thoughts about quince and he's like bring them down and they all went into the cider so it was actually yeah. quince cider 
And um, <laughs> it was less than 5%. So we didn't necessarily feel like we needed to talk about it. Um, but uh, yeah, there was, but there it's was, that there magic was ingredient property in there. Um, right. Yeah. We did the same thing with and pears. Actually, we were gifted a bunch of pears and we made a parry and uh, I ended up with um, a, a few pears from my tree. They went on. So yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot of fruit in that Valley. So the Valley Anderson Valley has had all these um, interesting su w uh, subsequent waves of agricultural development. So we had the native Americans who, you know, clearly did a better job than we did at land management. Um, and then um, initially we got hops growing, um, hence the term hopland. Uh, and hops right. was the thing that was grown besides sheep in the valley for a while. And then that was followed by apples. And at one point in time, the ap apple production in Anderson Valley was uh, unbelievable. They, I, th I think I read somewhere that they cut down an equivalent of 25 cords of wood per day per apple drying. These, this is dr apple dried apples. Wow. Per, uh, per um, apple drying shed, and there were 30 of them in the valley. So that is how much wood was getting cut down and burned per day to dry apples. This is many, many years ago. Um, and there are, of course, you know, apple trees are persistent, so they've, they've been around for a very long time. Um, and right. then, of course, we had the redwood, you know, everyone cutting down the redwoods and, and all the logging that oh. went on. And then we had grapes move in, and now we have pot. So it's like, it's just one yeah. agricultural wave after the other. And the question is, where are you in the, the progress of the wave? Are you at the head of it? Are you at the end of it and getting the sloppy seconds? What's, you know, anyway, so. An eater. Uh, yep. It's Alex. It's ours. Um, it's ours. I mean, okay. If you want to know who owns it, I own it. Um, okay. And got who it. pays yeah. the taxes? I paid the taxes. But um, Got it, it was very much Alex's idea. And I think he um, he opened the Instagram account for Sin Eater and we've never figured out how to transfer it over to me. <laughs> so I don't really care. I mean, you know, we, we, we're singing on the same hymnal. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, so I'm fine with that. I probably should be more worried about ownership, but I'm not. Um, so, so I'm guessing the name alludes to like... Uh, the Garden of Eden and eating the forbidden fruit kind of thing. Interesting you should bring that up. So Alex, God bless him, is um, an interesting and dark soul who uh, spends hours thinking about weird convoluted stuff like this. He had heard the term sin eater and did some research um, and loved the name and proposed the name and was like, we have to use this name. And um, initially I thought it was, you know, there's the double entendre. There's not only... Um, apples, the original sin. The, by the way, they, they, they believe that the original uh, uh, tree was a quince tree, not an apple tree, but we won't go there. Um, given the <laughs> Here location. I thought it was pomegranate. And, uh, and, but anyway, um, the, so that's the one, that's one of the meanings, meanings but the other one, um, uh, sin eater is um, the actual story of what a sin eater was. And I'll, I, I can do this relatively quickly. Here's my understanding of um, a sin eater. Um, in, I believe it's Appalachia or the southeastern hills of the United States, uh, back in the day when there was uh, really not easy transportation, people took horses places, people lived in the hills. And if you were uh, dying um, or gravely ill and likely to die, um, 
there was a desire to have some kind of religious, you know, person there or um, some way of absolving your sins at, at its most basic level, um, either last rites or a confession or whatever it, it was that, you know, your particular religious flavor um, was interested in. Um, and uh, because people were so remote, they did not always have the minister have the luxury of getting there before the person died. Um, a construct was developed apparently in these hills that had to do uh, with finding another way to absolve sins. And it went like this. Uh, there was someone in the town, uh, whether chosen or, or just self-appointed or designated, I don't really know, but they were basically the quote unquote sin eater. Um, and what they did is at night or in, uh, in cover of darkness or when no one knew or you know, whenever the, it was an appropriate time, um, the whoever was dying or at that point possibly dead um, would be laid out. Uh, they'd put a plate on the stomach of the person. They'd put a piece of bread on the plate. There was a belief that the sins would leave the body of the person and migrate into the piece of bread. The sin eater was the person who came to the house uh, knowing that there was someone dead or dying and ate the bread, thereby removing and absolving the dying person or dead person. Right. I would not want to be that person. Eat, yeah, that no bread how hungry wouldn't... I was. <laughs> bread doesn't sound very appetizing. No. Um, <laughs> did they then have to go purge themselves in some way? They, no, no one to... talks about that. And I'm sure that there's like yeah, a I wonder. story, right? But, right. Um, yeah, I would hope that they would because that I can't even imagine. Talk about two classes right. of citizens. Um, they, um, so anyway, Doug, uh, Doug, Doug's my husband, sorry. Alex um, really liked the story and liked it so much that he was not taking no for an answer. Um, yeah. And so we decided that I was like, okay, let's go with it. Fine. And it's really resonated. What ended up being kind of like this difficult, weird thing to explain to people has actually ended up becoming something of interest that people seem to, I don't know why, but they, it's fascinating and it's a pretty good story. So yeah, no, it's, I, right, well, I'm I was a, wrong, which is so frequently the case. <laughs> well, I'm a religion major, so I'm a sucker for anything oh. uh, related. So yeah, not religious, but you know, studied it. Got it. Got <laughs> I, think, it. I think that goes hand in hand. Yep. Um, no, I get it. So that ended up becoming <laughs> well, tell me, anything with, with carbonation and that includes the pet nat. And the Pet Nat Rosé, um, as well as Got the cherry so that's and all, all of that's... the apple ciders. And where are you getting your fruit? Do, I, I know Filigree Farm is one. Yep. Is that the main? No. Well, you know, it varies from year to year. So that's a, that's a good question. Okay. Um, Filigree Farm, I just, I just have to stop for a moment and do just a little blurb on Filigree Farm because they are a fabulous supplier. They are an oasis of, of, of earthly delights in the middle of Anderson Valley <laughs> that no one knows about and that um, I wish more people knew about. But um, yeah, there it's a it's a certified biodynamic farm. Chris and Steph who own it are uh, fabulous at what they do. They're she's she's the brains and the brawn and the 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 organization and he's the mad scientist and it's a, a great combo. Um, his, but uh, they he loves apples uh, and fruit of any kind he has i want to say 
does he have like 15 or 20 varietals growing regularly? So, I mean, he's got stuff like Cox Pippin and um, Smokehouse and uh, a Ribston Pippin and Sierra Beauty and Maiden's Blush. And I mean, his, his, his varieties of apples are fabulous and all really, really excellent to work with. Um, and because he packs out for food production, um, he doesn't have a number two and a number three kind of market. So he would routinely sell me his, uh, his apples, number twos, or actually, yeah, they were number twos and he'd sell them to me at a number three price. God bless him. Um, so I was using fabulous apple stock to make apples. The first year I did actually, did I do five? No, I did three. I did three separate varietals. They were varietal specific apple ciders, which was really mm -hmm. fun. But no one seemed to really care. It was fun for me, but like the the, the public was like, really good apple cider. I'm like, oh, that's that Sierra Beauty apple cider, or that's Smokehouse apple cider, <laughs> or that's. And then they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay. So that and it was a lot of work keeping everything separate and and fermenting everything separate. Right. The next year we worked with Phil Green and we just started blending. And honestly, I get why old apple cider makers blended because you really do get phenomenal characteristics. Um, that work well together as you blend. Um, so um, worked with filigree for a few years, and then um, <laughs> filigree got another um, a, a buyer who bought a lot of apples, and they became scarcer and more expensive. Uh, so I pivoted, and uh, Alex and I went down uh, one of the roads in Anderson Valley, which had a lot of old apple orchards on it. Many of which were abandoned, many of which, you know, people then built houses on and just let the orchards be. And we knocked on doors and called people and, you know, FaceTime or Facebook, hit them via Facebook and said, so um, could we harvest your apples and either pay you or trade you for cider? And people were incredibly gracious and were like, yeah, sure, just take them. So we did. So we have one cider that was literally made with um, abandoned and wild apples from Ornbaum Road. Um and, and that's what it is. It's, you know, they're just, it's, it's just whatever apples came in, the russeted, the, 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 we got, we're very lucky. There's, there's really pretty good quality fruit there. So we didn't have a whole lot of number threes. It was number ones and number twos. And we cited with that. So we work sometimes with filigree. Um, sometimes if we can file, find, you know, going back to our roots of wild and abandoned. Um, so it's, it's, it's what's that. available that year. I will also say that Phil, I also buy, all of my Pinot Noir from Filigree and I buy Pinot Gris from Filigree at Pet Natwith. So it's, I'm not just into them for uh, apples and sometimes pears, but also a lot of grapes and their grapes are also. Well, and you're making some, uh, you're making some non-traditional ciders or, or non, yeah. you're just doing some interesting things, right? You're hopping some cider, you're blending with grapes. So yeah, um, that is more of the, let's, let's go back to the bumbling uh, aspect here. I'll give Alex credit. I'm sure he thought all of this through and was really, really um, concise and, and, and careful in how he um, let this all develop. But bottom line is um, the regular cider we, we made, the varietal specifically made, and then the next year um, we tried the hops because I don't know whether you know this, but um, for many, many, many years, cider makers have used hops, small amounts of hops as a preservative and as a, um, yeah, I guess it's predominantly a preservative uh, in cider. It's, it's a pretty common thing. And as we were both researching cider, we learned more and more about it. 
and realized, oh wow, people have been using hops forever in making cider. It's it's one of the one of the elements that they don't always list, but it's you know, and it doesn't need to be particularly prevalent if you don't want it to be, but it is a flavor well, profile that people like. So we actually yeah, did the Amarillo really heavily hopped cider that smelled like pot. It was outrageous. Um, and, it, and it was really good and people really liked it. So we kind of stuck with that, but we actually hop every cider that we've got to a much lesser degree for, oh, okay. for a small amount of well, preservation because we don't do anything else with the apples. They're literally off the tree. It's native yeast and since native fermentation and I'm not putting any preservatives in it. So if hops will give me that little bit of preservation to get me so that I'm not passed out after nine months, then I'll take it. Um, and I like the crispness of it as well. I like the flavor, flavor profile it brings. You're also probably well, referring to the um, the co-ferments, um, and they yeah. are. That was a. Um, I'm I'm going to be honest with you. It was a complete mistake. Um, or actually, it was laziness. <laughs> it was laziness. We were um, hey, well, pressing apples that needed to be pressed. Some Sierra beauties. Laziness is the mother of it invention. So I think. totally is. Are you kidding? <laughs> are you seeing a theme? Um, so, uh, the bumbling lazy person. So, um, we had Sierra beauties that we needed to press. Um, it was late in the afternoon. Uh, we had pressed the Albarino off, uh, of the, of the stems. Um, earlier that day, it was still in the press. We needed to do the apples. We wanted to go home. I looked at Alex. Alex looked at me. He was like, you need to clean the press. I was like, no, you need to clean the press. And we looked at each other and we're like, it. We just dumped the apples in <laughs> to the pumice, the Albarino pumice. We're being, we're like, you know, yeah. it's fine. It's and multiple things happened. Um, it was the best cider that we ever made. I sold out within like three weeks. I was like, mm. oh my god! And not only that, but instead of having to buy rice hulls, which I don't like as a bulking agent, because basically when you're pressing fermented apples, it's like applesauce. It doesn't press well. <laughs> it's right. you need a bulking agent and voila the seeds and stems and skins of the grapes which are fabulous at giving us the capacity to bulk and then um allow juice drainage more elegantly we got i think 30 percent higher yield a whole different flavor wow. profile um we didn't have to clean the press out but once <laughs> <laughs> And um, most importantly, yeah, no, it was just—it was like it was such a happy mistake. Um, yeah, that's awesome. And once we realized that that was a good thing, we were like, okay. Um, so then we've since done Gewurz, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Pinot Noir. Um, trying to think what else. Albarino. Do you have a favorite of any of those? Say it again. Do you have a favorite of? Oh, the Pinot any Noir. Of your... Oh my God. It is the best. Really? Well, so, Ugh. I mean, I love the tannic profile of the Pinot Noir against the tannic profile of the apples. Um, yeah. And it's pretty. It's I, I laughed. I, I was doing a tasting with um, with a, a store that I sell to, and the person who was tasting with me was a millennial, and she's like, oh, my God, it's millennial pink. And I'm like, is that a thing? <laughs> Is that, that I, is a I, I thing. have no clue. That's so that. great. Anyway, apparently it's millennial pink, but um <laughs> but it's really tasty and really delicious and I love the hints of you know the 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 strawberry and um a little bit of the oh, vegetal so uh, um sense that comes with the Pinot Noir um mixed with the apple. It's just I love it. It's 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 my summer drink. And this is what I drink all summer. 
That sounds fantastic. And this is all, uh, it's already like, so you've already made wine straight, you know, like normal Pinot Noir wine from that, those grapes, you've pressed them and now you're adding them, adding the apple juice to the pressed grapes. Is that always the way you do it now? Yep. So here's the theme okay. again, right? Reuse. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic, right? You, you never get, you don't want to overpress any of your grapes because you don't want those characteristics. You want to go relatively gently. Um, right. And yet there is so much still left in the grapes um, that if you, you know, mix something else and spin it and bulk it out, um, you're going to get more juice. So we figured we've done enough analysis to, to acknowledge that it's about 90% apples and about 10% grapes. Got it. Yeah. So let me ask you something about making cider. You're, you're talking about throwing the apples in the press. Have they already been crushed? Point, that's, or? A, that's a good question. Um, so we do apples in a kind of old school way. So everything that we get comes in. We do not wash it. We do not. I, I basically go through every apple with a, with a, a knife and clean out stuff that's nasty because I don't like clunky cider. I like clean cider. Um, yeah. Which is when we did five tons one year. Oh my God, was I over it? It's a lot of I work. never wanted to look at another <laughs> friggin' apple in my life. But anyway, it, it, there were good results. So and then we had. Like um, you you also shouldn't laugh at this. We had um, undersized equipment for the volume that we were putting through. So I had basically oh. a home grinder. <laughs> that you could throw three or four apples in at a time. And we did five tons oh worth of apples, three or four apples at a time. And what it does oh is just, it, it, it grinds it into irregular sized chunks. Uh, it's okay. called stratting them. Uh, East Coast term for it is stratting, S-C-R-A-T-T-I-N-D-G, uh, which is breaking them into irregular sized chunks. And then you let Got them it. ferment. And uh, some of the larger chunks still maintain uh, the skins are still there, of course, the stems, seed, um, the whole apple. Right. Uh, but it does definitely ferment and size reduce and break down to a point so that when you eventually press it, uh, it has already been completely broken down into very lumpy applesauce. Okay, got it. So you're pressing essentially off the fermented pumice, yep. the same with, same as you do with the wine. Got it. Yeah. And and. Are you using like a Euro press, like a big bladder press, or is it a what kind of press? That is it? was exactly what we were using. That was what was available. Okay. It's not the most efficient yeah. way of doing it, and that's why the introduction of the grapes made a huge difference in volume. Huge. Got it. Got it. That's very cool. So, are you doing any straight ciders now that you've figured I out do how? I do a straight much... cider. I do a traditional um, because there are people that you know like vanilla, so that's traditional. Um, sure. And. Um, it's still my biggest seller. It's usually what I keg. Uh, okay. Because when, yeah, when you're doing that kind of volume, you usually want, I don't want to call it the lowest common denominator, but I want to call it the least challenging um, and weird thing. So yes, I do, right. we do a traditional cider and then we do four other ciders or this year. Got we do it. Four other ciders. Yeah. That sounds great. I mean, I'm a huge cider fan and I, I'm, really glad to be seeing the sort of renaissance of ciders across the nation mm -hmm. right now that's happening it's very exciting glad you guys are making what you're making i can't wait to try it actually oh. getting thirsty just talking about it <laughs> <laughs> so but let's talk about your wines because we did kind of skipped over the wines and maybe we should sort of wrap up with you sort of talking about those so obviously you're making a pinot and uh, do you want to talk about the, the farming that goes into any of these or 
you know anything that any stories behind any of the wines and just yeah i yeah i'll happily go into this um and it's important for me to talk about the farming because frankly that's kind of a good 40 to 50 percent of why we're doing this in the first place um yeah so yes farming is important um we we did four varietals this year or we actually did four four wines this year we did a um the sauvignon blanc and you've heard enough about that vineyard um everything that we make comes in there's no there's nothing on it no sulfur nothing um not even not even irrigation it's it's completely dry farm so it comes in um it's a spontaneous fermentation um we sulfur only at bottling the Sauv blanc is filtered uh sterile filtered and when you understand the um whole concept of secondary fermentation you understand why um so it is uh, sterile filtered and we sulfur probably between 15 and 30 ppm um at bottling uh and then it okay. goes in bottle it's really straightforward it's very simple um we don't add sugar we don't add water we don't add tartaric acid we don't add any of the fining agents or it's basically wine with a small amount of sulfur to preserve it. I sell predominantly right. to restaurants and well, not anymore, but I used to sell predominantly to restaurants and markets and I don't have a whole lot of control about how stuff is stored. And the last thing that I need when I'm, I'm at a really razor thin profit margin is to have returns because stuff goes bad. Um, and when I started yeah. making natural wine or what I call natural wine, there weren't as many people that were hip to natural wines and getting returns just sucks. <laughs> so yeah. I started sulfuring a small amount because I had done nothing in the vineyard. So I was okay doing a small amount at bottling. So that's the stuff right. that we also did an Albarino this year. Um, I love Albarino. It is one of my absolute favorite varietals in the entire world. I wish I could grow it, but I don't think I can where I'm located. Mm. Um, there are only two plantings that we know of in Anderson Valley and probably only three or four in all of Mendocino County. There's not a varietal that anyone works with a whole lot in, um, in Northern California and, uh, which is a shame because I love the acid and, and probably something that I should talk about is that the acid profile in all of our wines is pretty high. And that's because of the chemistry and not wanting to have to add anything else or screw with the wines and add chemicals. Um, the higher your the higher your acid, the lower the bricks you pick at, and the higher acid um, gives you access to a better, in my mind, a better flavor profile, uh, a more durable wine with less addition of anything, and frankly, I think it's more food friendly. But um, yeah. that's a style choice that that we made early on in order not to have to manipulate the wine in the winery. Um, so the Albarino has a great acid profile. Um, we we uh, buy from this gentleman who, when he planted the Albarino vineyard 20 years ago, everyone was like, Alba what? And they thought he was crazy. And he could not sell the Albarino when he first grew it. And now everyone fights for it. And I'm happy to say that for the last four years, I have won. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so that's, hey, I well- love the Albarino. And that is non-certified organic. Um, and that's because he's just too lazy to get, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. Um, he's, he's, <laughs> he's not uh, willing to go through the process of certifying. And boy, do I relate to that. Because frankly, I mean, he's got an eensy weensy. It's, it's less than an acre and a quarter of Albarino. And his oh, certification yeah. process for that would be ridiculous, which is similar to what I looked right. into when I wanted to certify uh, as organic um, my vineyard. 
and there's it's it's for a small uh, vineyard it is cost prohibitive yeah. it it would it would increase my wine cost by two to five dollars a bottle which is not wow yeah, it's not gonna happen um so I walked away from that uh, and so did he so it's non-certified organic which means that the consumer if they care about organic is gonna have to trust me which is a stretch um, right. or, um, not buy it because I, I, look, I worked at rainbow groceries, one of the original organic groceries in the Bay area. And I get the importance of certification and I'm riding on the coattails yep. and I get that. And I also realize that people don't know me from a hole in the wall and they could think I'm full of beans and that's fine. And it might not be a good wine for them because, all I have is the knowledge of how I grew it or how I know the person grew it. What I do do is I'm out there in the vineyard with the person and with the people that are working on the grapes. And I know what goes into it. Um, and that's, yeah, you know, trust thing. The, other, the other thing that I would say that is an uh, unknown resource to most people are, are, is the publicly available pesticide use reports yep. that I've, I've actually yep. discovered recently and have written an article about it because I think it's an amazing thing that California does where any grower who wants to grow has to report every pesticide that they put on their crop, right. whether it's grapes or lettuce. Right. And they have to report that every time they use it. Right. And there is a public database going back to the 70s of every pesticide that's been put on every crop in the entire state of California. And, it is and so if you for, want... It's formidable. That's a formidable thing that people knew about it. Yeah. And you all, I mean, there, you know, there are some hoops to jump through. You have to contact the county of wherever the producer lives and ask for the records for them for the, you know, however many years you're interested in finding out, but they send you a spreadsheet and you can see it all listed and you can see if they're lying about you know, having used nothing that would have uh, violated the organic certification, even if they aren't certified. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that they're not, they don't have to put in like, you know, fertilizer if they're using a non-organic fertilizer, obviously, like if they wanted to use ammonium phosphate or whatever they could, but, uh, and that's not in there, but at least you get a sense of, are they spraying pesticides right. that are bad right. or not, you know, or are they true to their word in that sense? So I, I think, you know, the more and more I've, I've been relying on that because I've been purchasing grapes and looking at potential things like that. I want to find out if, if I can trust people and I don't trust people either. So I get that side of it as well. Um, but yeah, that, you know, so there you go. Yeah. Just out no, there. it's a, it's a fabulous resource and I've actually, I actually have used it. It's only um, precluded me from purchasing one, um, one uh, year, one set of grapes, but that was valuable. Um, so, and then just to finish, yeah. I make a pet gnat out of Pinot Gris that's certified biodynamic grapes from Filigreen Farm. Mm -hmm. And I make a Pinot Noir out of uh, only Pinot Noir from Filigreen Farm. So um, most oh, of what nice. I make is um, it's either wild, non-certified organic or certified biodynamic. And with right. the apples, the same is true. They're either wild um, or, I, you know, again, with Ornbaum Road, we talked to everyone and asked them what they used when they were growing. So it's in that sense, it's because they're homeowners. It is their word. Um, but I would like to think that people are pretty honest about what <laughs> they're using. Um, and then when we source from, from uh, filigree, of course, um, everything, again, is certified biodynamic. So I'm, I'm comfortable enough with the, um, 
with the growing mechanisms and the growing techniques um, that I I can look people in the eye and say, it's it, th this is where stuff comes comes from and this is what I think it contains and you know you be the judge you you decide if that's what you want to do. Right. Yep. No, I f I feel the same way and I. I feel those pressures from both sides the you know as a consumer myself but then also from the other side working with people who it is a financial burden to get those certifications but they uh, they obviously you know know it working with them and talking with them you know that they want to do good and and that you can trust them so it's right. it is that dual-sided thing right. um i guess my i one final thing i want you you talk a lot on your website and just in us talking about uh, carbon footprint and i notice um your your bottles in the packaging you don't have capsules over the top of your bottles does that have anything to do with just not wanting to have useless uh stuff I, maybe i'm looking at old picture maybe you do use capsules oh now. my god yeah i could go for hours about remember what did i do before i did this i exactly. was exactly that's a recycling <laughs> person it's one of the reasons that i still keg wine even though it is one of yeah. the hardest things to market and sell because unfortunately, a lot of people who keg and sell wine are selling pretty bad wine in kegs. Right. I have to be honest. And as a result, um, there are a lot of people trust keg wine. And I, the, the stuff I put in my keg is the same thing that goes in the bottle. Um, yep. Oh, yeah, that's the garbage wine. Put it in the keg. So it's, um, but, but I, I mean, if I could sell everything in keg, I would die and go to heaven. I have talked with yeah, me too. About how many yeah. markets I've talked to about doing growlers. I'm like, come on, man, put in a system, get yeah. the argon push, put in a system, do growlers. It's fabulous. All of Europe, right? You go to Italy, you go to a winery, you bring in your demijohn. It's called Sfuso. It means loose wine. You decant. It's a fabulous way of getting really reasonable wine in large volume so that you don't feel like you're, you know, breaking the bank every time you're pouring another glass. Um, and it's the ultimate kind of reuse. It kills yeah. me all the bottles that go through. It's, uh, believe yeah, me, just... if I could figure out a way to not do the cork, if I could figure out a way how not to do the label, <laughs> yeah, I wish, I wish. It's, it has been one of my, it's the conundrum. And it is hard for me sometimes when I look at the palette of glass that comes in when I've got a bottle, it just kills me. Yeah. So I'm like, oh my god! And I have to be honest with you. When I first started making wine, when I made when I make my own wine, I I scrape labels and wash bottles. And, yeah, and, you know, and that that is a, a challenge and a commitment in and of itself. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I thought I was going to do that when I went commercial, and it was probably like the fifth or sixth case, and I'm like, okay, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I know it's, you know, the, the demands of commercial, it is heartbreaking. And I, it's the same thing. I know it's like, I mean, I've, I've made a point to source the lightest bottles possible that I can find, but it's still a lot of glass. Right. And yeah. But, yeah, but I, if you don't do glass, if you do plastic, if you do aluminum, then you've got right. other potential contamination that flies in the face yeah. of growing stuff organically. So I mean, what I look at and what I think about and what I harken back to is that when you really, in the final analysis, what you really need to do is be as local as possible with as little transportation as possible, the most efficiently as possible, and reuse those bottles if you can for something else. Yeah, become a home winemaker and just 
<laughs> reuse your commercial bottles for your home yeah. wine. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. It's been honestly a delight to talk to you. And um, you, I can't wait to try your stuff. I, you know, this happened so quickly. I haven't even had a chance to. But again, your wines, uh, as you say, aren't available. Can you? Can we get your cider anywhere? So you're in Southern California. Um, n- the cider is not easy to get down there. Um, okay. Venocity Selections carries my wines. Um, and they have, yeah, it's it's Venocity or like Vino City Selections. Okay. Um, they're available in some markets. They're av- they were available in a lot of restaurants. I don't know what he's doing now. God bless him. We're all reinventing ourselves in, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. But um, you're going to have to wait till you come back up here to try the ciders. I'm sorry. Right. I don't have enough. <laughs> I right. really don't have. So basically, I sell to where I drive. <laughs> right. So I mean, I know that sounds horrible, but I've, I've avoided like selling stuff in Sacramento because I'm like, I'm not driving to Sacramento. Screw that. Um and Everything. it varies. I started out about like at 130 cases and I have been as high as 1400 and I'm now, now down to about 800 and, okay. and that's a pretty comfortable area. I'm 60 years old and you know, I have a back that is like, yeah, I think I can move 800 cases a year because you move every case three, maybe four, right? So right. Like, yeah. yeah, I think that's probably enough. <laughs> so that's pretty <laughs> you get your exercise for the yeah. year. But um, yeah, the, the, you're going to have to come up here for this. You let me know when you come up. I'll, I'll fix you up. With well, now I have a reason. Now you have a I'm reason. Excited. And it's beautiful. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, I know. I might, uh, I might have to move there at some point myself. Um, well, thank you. Is there, do you want to please mention your website and Instagram channels oh, or God. whatever? Yeah, I know. I should do Sorry. all this. You can tell I'm, I'm like, a, um, yeah, I should be, be better at marketing. So the website is www.yamakiriwines.com. And I don't, well, my Instagram is just yamakiriwines, I think. And then Alex has some yeah. ciders. So um, eater, if you put yeah. in yamakiri, yeah. it's a weird enough name. You'll get it. Uh, uh, you'll you'll find it. There's very little yamakiri out there. So um, Yeah. What does yamakiri mean? You know, it's funny. No, normally that's the first question I get. Yamakiri is <laughs> Japanese. For Foggy Mountain, which is, uh, we have a very foggy mountain. We have this weird weather system where we're at, where we get intense sun and then a lot of fog. Not unusual to the rest of the valley. Um, And I chose, instead of calling it Foggy Mountain Wine, (laughs) um, (laughs) I chose the Japanese in deference to, again, Masanobu Fukuoka uh, and his teachings and book One Straw Revolution and an approach to farming that we hope to emulate. Uh, and support and announce to the world as best we can. I love that. Well, that sounds like a great send-off. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate you doing this. It's been great talking. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. I don't take your time or attention for granted and really appreciate any feedback that you want to send to adam at centraliswine.com. That's adam at C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. And Centralis Wine is my winery where you can buy wine that supports organic, biodynamic, regenerative viticulture and agricultural in general. 
Centralis is the sponsor of this podcast, so you also support the people who I feature here. So thank you so much, and please check us out, centraliswine.com.